Scuba Obsessed is the weekly podcast where we talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 70 is recorded live Thursday, June 9th, 2011. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. Some of the articles we'll have this week in the news is we have a video of the week from the tsunami. We have Diving Safe, A Little Heat, Dive Shop Owner Arson, Scuba Trust, Scuba Business Takes a Dive, and Another Scuba Career. And uh, I'd like to welcome my uh, co-hosts this week. We have Claire from Egypt. How are you doing today, Claire? Good morning. I'm very well. How are you? Doing great. Fantastic. And we also have Mac. How you doing, Mac? Doing really good. Glad to be here. So what we'll do is we'll go ahead and jump right on into the news. We'll get that out of the way so we can talk about the great stuff, which is the diving. So the first article is actually a video. This one is the tsunami uh, video uh, underwater. Uh, just such a tragedy, that tsunami that happened over in Japan. And I don't even know how to describe the video. Um, that's kind of what you knew was down there, but it really doesn't come home until you actually see it. Uh, it shows uh, vehicles, homes, debris, mattresses. There's one there where they show uh, a photo that looks in pristine condition laying in the coral. You know, somebody's prized memories. Just unbelievable. It's going to be awesome to take a look at that. But uh, every time I try to go to that, I keep hearing the uh, audio that goes with it. So I'll look at it a little later. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the thing sometimes with those videos is they, they want to throw a commercial in front of it. So you, you have to brave that commercial or pre-roll as the industry calls it before you can get in and see it. But it is just amazing what's down there. And, and I'm the same way. I, I, I want to dive it, but then you just know that all the tragedy, tragedy that went with it. And then before the show, I was talking with Claire, and, I'm, and I hope they don't leave a lot of that stuff down there. Uh, you know, for me, a lot of it should come back up, salvage it or, or do something or clean it up. I mean, I mean, whether it's debris from a tragedy or junk somebody left down there, it, it should be cleaned up. I'm sure they will probably do that, but I'm sure that's on the back burner right now. Oh, yeah. You, you've got to restore the basic services. I mean, they still have that nuclear plant that they're messing with. I saw today that they're going to increase that uh, radius around the plant uh, for safety. It's still amazing on the nuclear plant that uh, the China syndrome did not occur, and that in spite of all the, the cost, it's going to cost quite a bit to do it. I don't think the long-term... Uh, fallout from it, using that word loosely, will be as bad as a lot of people had feared, which is good. Well, yeah, we, we've kind of proven it the hard way that, you know, some of these designs of the nuclear plants and conditions that go out there, that there there is enough fail-safe. I mean, we'd like to have some more, and I think we get better at it. You, you figure the design of those reactors. What's that, the uh, that's a water boil reactor they have there? Uh, I believe that was a PWR. Uh, pressurized water reactor as yeah. opposed to a boiling water reactor. Okay. So, but you, you figure those designs with that, those have to be from what, the 50s and 60s when those were originally designed? Yeah, they actually they were. Yeah. With so. modifications and updates through the last 30, though. Yeah. Yeah. So. Incredible that they've lasted that long and, as you say, still been able to put at least some of the fail safe measures in. You know, they weren't expecting to have this earthquake and the tsunami hit. It's just unbelievable that it actually has managed to at least hold together to a certain extent. Obviously, there has been excessive damage as well. Certainly, I mean, it's just uh, you know, you know, a lot of a lot of times you plan for disaster, you can handle one thing, but you start piling them up on each other, and, and you have problems. Yeah. Uh, and this is another article I didn't really want to cover. But I think there is a little bit of value. This is, uh, uh, if you'd been following the news, uh, I believe this was in the U.S., the Tolum County Sheriff's Department released Tuesday the cause of death for two men who were scuba divers in the Jamestown mine on April 9th. Uh, you know, you hate to have the tragedy, but I'd like to find out what the cause was just to make sure that I don't repeat their mistake. And if you look down a little bit in the article, uh, they said that... Uh, 
goodness, now I lost it. Um, what they're doing is they're diving at a 500 foot deep open pit mine. Um, well, what got me is they said they were setting up safety equipment. So I was curious what the safety equipment was, and they didn't really talk about it. And the secondary item was, uh, seemed like that happened that they had insufficient air, which meant to me is they ran out of air, which is uh, something that really should not happen. Yeah. Oh, he, he, here it is, what, what I was looking for. It said um, that James Pollard, 37, suffered a lung injury. And then uh, Derek Diedrich, 34, drowned after trying to rescue Pollard. So, you know, from what I remember from other articles I had read on it, safety equipment, I think that's what somebody's calling the platforms. They're putting uh, dive platforms and markers. So, you know, I'm not sure if I necessarily call that safety equipment, but I guess it could have been. Uh, they were trying to have an annual dive there at the lake, and then they were even talking about making that a, a normal scuba attraction. Uh, but, you know, it's, uh, but again, later on in the article where they talked about uh, that the second diver came in aid of the first diver, uh, Diedrich was left with an insufficient amount of air and was not able to manage his remaining air supply and drowned. So it almost sounded like he had come up uh, with his friend and then didn't have air. So I, I'm just kind of puzzled if you could make it to the surface. You know, and they were buddy breathing, or or maybe they were buddy breathing and they both ran out of air. It doesn't actually say whether they were buddy breathing or on the like on an actual alternate, because that would be quite interesting. Because one of the issues that we've heard about re- recently um, is that there have been quite a few deaths with people sharing a single mouthpiece and not actually having an alternate air source. And um, because obviously there's a point at which both of you have no regulator in your mouth. And yeah, if that is the case, that's another sad statistic onto that issue as well. But true, that could be. I, I know, uh, you know, we've talked about it in the club. You know, they, they used to treat, uh, train for the buddy breathing and, and now we don't even do it. It's the, you know, offering the alternate air source. Mm. I mean, I don't, I don't introduce buddy breathing now until the rescue course, which I use as a kind of fun introducing of slightly more stressful ways of you know, sharing air or slightly more stressful things underwater because um, in the dive master, obviously now it's used as a stress test with the kit exchange. But um, in the open water course, we're now told, no, you don't even, it's not even an optional skill, it's one that's not included. So we just yeah we just stick with the alternate air source and if that's not working it's a Caesar. Yeah, it also sounded like there were two other divers with them that there are four divers there. So really, yeah. I'm, I'm, I looked at another article so. on it. Uh, the other article on it uh, is a little bit conflicting. It talked about uh, according to Wilton Dietrich and Pollard were scuba diving Saturday afternoon when Pollard panicked. And then it says he was raised to the surface but died at Sonora Regional Medical Center. Dietrich's body was found about 135 feet deep in the water. Wow. And the U.S. Corps of Engineers deployed special equipment into the mine to lift Dietrich's, or Dietrich's body from the mine. So wow. I'm not quite sure what they were doing. Yeah. Well, and it says it's 500 foot deep. That's so that's deep. Yeah, that's that's really deep for a mine, or or what I, I guess maybe not so deep for a mine, but for what we would consider to be a quarry. At least the photo looks like a quarry, and those around here tend to. I mean, 200 feet's a pretty deep quarry. Now that one over there by Chicago, Mac, if they ever fill that one up. <laughs> that is quite deep, and that would be along the same lines. But I think the only reason that would be a usable is because you have your staggered depth, because mm-hmm. a 500 foot pit. You're not going to dive it. That's not safe, or unless you're you know, doing techie training. But if you have a staggered depth, you go down 100 and have a shelf. You go down another 50 or 100 and have another shelf. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's the way the one out there is. It's got shelves in many areas, so it's not strictly 500 feet. Uh, looking at a different one, I just looked up another one. They had been out there the week before. Uh, Curry, who was a photographer, said they were down at the 200 feet level. So they yeah. were obviously setting things up and diving pretty deep. Yeah, that's I mean, that's awful deep, unless they were trying to do something intentionally tech. So, you know, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for stuff like that. I don't normally like covering the negative 
but uh, there's something to be learned. Yeah. It's a shame if they're thinking of using it for you know, future diving as well, because inevitably, Saturn base, sadly, it's going to just put a bit of a cloud over that location as well. And it might be that something happened that caused them to go deeper than they planned or something, we don't know. And no, that's gonna, it's gonna create a stigma on that lake for the time being, isn't it? People go, oh, don't dive there, it's dangerous. It might be that they did something, there's something fundamental that caused this to happen, not just the, the depth of it or something like that. Yeah, that, that, that can happen. Mm. Um, yeah. uh, the, Sad. The next article is Dive Shop Owner Denies Arson. This one's out of Australia. Uh, Ion Kutsi, 40, of Lauderdale, has pled not guilty for one count of arson and one of attempting to dishonestly acquire a financial advantage. Kutsi is accused of starting a fire that destroyed the Aquascuba on Elizabeth Street in, in April this year. The fire caused extensive damage to the building and contents, destroyed property worth about $400,000. So, so we'll we'll start off the negative. It'll get more positive here. You know? <laughs> we don't we don't want to cloud it, but uh, you know, I, I'm always amazed. I mean, and we should say allegedly. I mean, they they haven't been convicted yet, but uh, <laughs> uh, you, usually an arson, you can't get away with it. Yeah, they they know so many ways now. I mean, I'm not no farmer, but. They know so many ways they can tr discover traces of kerosene or whatever you use, if you use any kind of accelerants. You know, it's, they're so good at investigating how fires start. So as you say, you can't get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever they, did it. Yeah. You know. Yeah, because they can, they can bring in dogs. You know, dogs can go and smell. If you had an accelerant, they can look on the concrete to see the pattern that was there. Also, if you end up doing better at the end, uh, yeah, that's that's a good motivation, and and they're definitely going to be questioning your your insurance companies don't like it when you get the upper hand that way. Yeah, that's true. Okay, and then one more negative story. <laughs> <laughs> on a cheery yeah. note. <laughs> yeah, this is this is it. You know, you you couldn't tell we had sunny weather. A woman <laughs> on woman out on bond and dive shop embezzling case. A former scuba company employee who allegedly stole about forty-three thousand dollars from company has been falsely of um, by falsely receipts and business records was released without bail yesterday. Uh, Kimbuku or Kimi Nomito Comanche, thirty-three, was charged yesterday in Superior Court of Guam with two counts of theft of property held in a trust, a second-degree felony, according to court documents. Uh, she had altered. Uh, reservation logs and cash receipts disguising the fact that sh the actual sales of the company and the revenue didn't match. Uh, they had an auditor come through, which was able to catch the discrepancy. Uh, she was highly trusted. It didn't feel good. It really sad and unfortunate. Uh, they said that she was more of a family member than an employee. It always seems it's that way. It is. You trust the most. Yeah. It's awful. Such a shame, you know, to abuse that kind of trust. Yeah, uh, it certainly is. You know, I, I, I've had family members who own businesses and actually had something similar about this, almost the same dollar amount. Really? Happened, yeah. They, they, they owned an amusement park and they had uh, an office manager who stole the money. And it was one of those positions that had almost always been done by a family member. And, you know, they, this one time they were trying to help somebody out who needed a job and had an accounting experience or at least so they thought and got embezzled from so and and it's hard if you're a small business that's yeah. not something you can recover from and i'm sure that might be part of how they caught her is uh you just kind of know what you're doing you know that the boats are full how busy things are and then when you start looking after a period of time at the end of the year and you go you know what for as busy of a year we had we didn't do that well so yeah. they probably got to poking around and that's what brought it out yeah, because that's a fair, that's a big chunk of money to go missing. Yeah, well, especially we know how you know dive businesses. It's you know like yeah, yeah. It's, it's not like they're raking it in hand over fist as it is. No. no. <laughs> okay, and this one, I, I guess I'd call this one a little bit more positive. And <laughs> we're slowly working our way out of the basement of the news. <laughs> uh, this one is a scuba business takes a dive. 
A to Z scuba selling equipment for fun in the water, but this week the owner is wishing for a little dry land. The business is surrounded by stacks of sandbags. Sump pumps are working to contain flooding to the building's crawl space out of its main level. said it's kind of ironic. Uh, We bought this place in 2006. We've never had anything like this, but we're at the low spot, and there's nowhere for this water to drain. Uh, The road crews came out to the area and closed off section of the north lane of the 2nd Avenue to westbound traffic, which assisted their battle with the water. Before that, vehicles would come through crate waves that would slosh right on over the sandbags. Now, where was this at? I'm looking at the photo, (laughs) and I I don't really identify what state that is. And I'm a little confused because the one part that said the owner came back from working in South Africa to find his manager and family fighting back the rising water. <laughs> well, this one is uh, Montana. Mont. And in Montana, especially, I don't hear about floods in Montana. Well, they were, I was reading something the last couple of weeks, you know, we've had all this flooding in the Midwest and, you know, down the Mississippi that they were expecting it actually to move its way out West. And I don't think it's necessarily the same cause. I mean, yeah, the cause is too much water, but, uh, it's just been the weather patterns this year. Uh, rain has just been heavier in areas that don't normally get it. Well, I just switched over to take a look at a different site, and Montana's got flooding like you wouldn't believe. That's like I don't think of Montana. I think of high country. But, again, you got to remember it's got the plains and flatlands. But there's a lot of pictures in here of lots and lots of water. Yeah. Well, even other spots on that same website where we had this story, they just show tons of flooded business. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, w- I wonder if he's been able to sell snorkels or anything because of the flooding. <laughs> you start training in the back garden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you want to drive right off the back. You can yeah. throw you on some gear and you're ready. Try your kit out. <laughs> this next one is about some uh, scuba careers. Uh, dive, sh- uh, dive organization is uh, using military divers for underwater construction. Uh, they say they like the, uh, they're, they're using, the, they like the people in the military uh, who are divers because they're already pre-trained. Uh, they just have to train them in a few of the construction specific tasks. So it shows if you're a Navy diver, there is some, some work for you outside the Navy. Not only Navy, Army has divers. See, I don't think of the Army as having divers, but it makes sense. I mean, It's like the Army has more boats than the Navy does. That's not mm-hmm. running. Really? Or they? You mean? Is it because of smaller size boats? Absolutely. I figured it was all those guys on on leave fishing. <laughs> well, the Navy has planes, so. That's true. Yeah, I was reading through that. It turns out he's uh, First Ranger Battalion. That's Army. Yep. So maybe it's just the person who wrote the article who said that. But uh, so there are some careers out there. He says they do a lot of. Uh, uh, recovery underwater, uh, work for yachts and marinas, putting in docks. So a variety, a little bit of everything. Well, it's just like uh, local, remember? We've got the local high school that's branching out. Uh, they're doing a pilot program teaching their uh, trade students who are welding, uh, all facets of welding, to be underwater welders. Yeah, I, that that is interesting. Yeah, I remember we talked, we haven't talked about it here in the program, but we were talking about the dive club uh that they were starting to do some underwater welding. Right. So they're broaching it out, trying to get the guy's experience. It's, it's a lot easier to teach a welder to dive, a good welder, than it is a diver to weld. <laughs> I'm sure. That's, yeah, that's very true, I'm sure. It's the same like photography, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, you know, my, my, my father-in-law is a welder. And, yeah, it's one of those things I just have, have never had the knack for is, is how to weld. So I have to resemble that statement. Well, I don't weld very well, but I can cut and burn with the best. <laughs> well, cut and burn, you just... <laughs> well, that's, that's what I was salvage. You just go down there and you cut something out of the way because you need to get it up. But, but isn't uh, part of the the welding need is for, you know, underwater structures, you know, uh, drywalls and then the nuclear plant? Don't they do quite a bit of underwater welding? Not wet. They try not to have to do that wet because your weld is, especially on a nuclear facility, you're not going to be doing stainless steel in the water. Uh, you can go down and make a habitat, and meaning you can make a, a, a little hut underwater, pump the water out, and then you can weld it in a gas environment. And that's if you want a real good weld, that's what you're going to do. Okay. But you're, you're, you're limited, off, of course, on your depth 
and then your cost, of course, goes up. Okay. This next article is out of the UK. A scuba diver experts attends book signing. And I, what I liked about this more than the book signing is what the book was about. The uh, His new book, The UK Dive Guide, is expected to go down well with fellow divers. It features 100 dive sites from around the UK, including the wreck of the E-39 submarine off Pembrokeshire to the unknown coaster in Portland Harbor. What's the unknown coaster, I wonder? Well, unknown means they probably got a coaster, which is a type of vessel, and they just didn't have a name for it. Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, an unknown ship or a schooner, yeah. an unknown schooner, in their case, unknown coaster. Uh, I was thinking like a roller coaster. I'm like, you know, you you would kind of think you would know where one of those was. Yeah. <laughs> no, like coaster. Oh, okay. Remember, we used to go from, from Benton Harbor to uh, Michigan City, Michigan City down to a different port, and they were mm-hmm. coast freighters so they could stay near shore. Ah. Uh, Sounds like they had a lot of neat things to look at, though. And the UK does have some great dive sites. Unfortunately, I haven't seen them. I've seen a quarry. <laughs> but there, there's, there are loads of wrecks in the channel because it's just had so much shipping going on. So, and up in Scapa Flow in Scotland, they've got some amazing, amazing wrecks up there and good visibility. So, no, it's good that someone's written a book about it. It's really great. I love all those those type of books. Anything that, that gives me more dive sites to dive, I'm, I'm all for. You also there's notice a, most, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, there's a program on in the UK at the moment, and I wish I could remember the name of it, and it's literally, it's unveiling British Secrets, Secret Seas, I think it's British Secret Seas. Oh, I'm going to have to look that up. Um, and it's, yeah, it's basically um, this guy sharing his, um, his dives around the UK and actually showing how good they are. Nice. Yeah. Well, you also notice a lot of the UK pictures when you see the guys, or actually not even UK, but in Europe, you know, they've all got dry suits on because they're dry, their water is much colder up there in the oh. northern. It's, it's yeah, totally for sure. Look at them as opposed to the med. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can relate to this guy. Yeah, the, the, the British Sea, I don't think ever, even down south in like Cornwall, I think the warmest it ever gets is about 18 degrees centigrade, which is, um, what's that? It's about 64. That's the warmest it ever gets, but it's normally around about one, two, in the three, maybe in the quarries. <laughs> in the sea, maybe a little bit warmer, maybe in the high single figures. Wow. Yeah, it's called Britain's Secret Seas. Nice. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to watch it in this area. That's a shame. It's a blocked program there? Yeah, the BBC have an iPlayer, and I think you're only able to watch it in Europe, but I'm sure someone will probably grab it and pop it up on the internet at some point. They'll probably sell it to another company, so it'll be available worldwide. We we get the same thing. We have a a channel called BBC America, which they're not, it's not the BBC, it's an American company, but they buy almost all their content from uh, the BBC. So sometimes it takes a while. Also, a lot of the BBC stuff comes over on what we call our public TV. Yeah. So uh, one way or another, we'll, we'll eventually get it. At least I hope so. Yeah. It looks nice. The, the, the bit that I can see of their video actually looks like they have moon jellyfish, which we have over here in Sean. <laughs> yeah. So what kind of jellyfish do you have there? Moon jellyfish. They're about, say, about four inches wide. And they're re- no, very pale translucent with little pale lilac rings inside. And they don't sting at all. They're really you know, completely harmless. But they're quite pretty. Wow. Yeah. We've got jellyfish around here. I just have never seen them. Oh, the fresh one. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Little tiny things from what I understand. Now, do they? I don't believe they make it through the winter, do they? Well, I mean, something makes it through, but uh, they ne- they never go, get all that large. I'd imagine I'd imagine they struggle. <laughs> yeah, the only ones I've seen around here is in quarries. The same thing as paddlefish. Did I lose you guys? No, I'm still here. Uh, you, so you, you said in the in the quarries? Oh, the paddlefish. Find the paddlefish, and you'll find those uh, freshwater ones, like you were talking. Yeah, the, the thing with the um, 
the paddlefish that there is um, uh, up the Mississippi where they've got that Asian carp coming in. Uh, that's one of the, the animals that they're worried that's going to be displaced because their their diet is almost identical to the Asian carp. Ah. So we so haven't had a, battle it out. Yeah, we that's, haven't had any articles on the Asian carp in a while. That paddlefish is a curious looking fish. It is. Uh, I've, I've, I've seen one diving, and I have to say it kind of startled me. Jim and I were yeah. down at France Park in Indiana, which is a fairly shallow uh, stone quarry, uh, about 30 feet deep, and we were about 20, 25 feet, and he pointed, and I looked over my shoulder, and it's this you know, big object. Uh, you know, It was probably only two and a half, three feet long, but it looked about nine uh, that nose. Yeah, it just it just looks. I mean, it, it looks like a fish with a chainsaw. <laughs> it's a bit like a duckbill platypus, actually. I know, a completely different animal, but it's got that kind of feel to it. Yeah, and then they they like to when they're swimming, they typically have their mouth open, so you can kind of see light coming through the gills. They just just a bizarre looking fish. Brilliant. We had dove at a lot of quarries where everybody kept saying, "Oh, there's paddlefish here, paddlefish here," and you never saw them, but. Uh, there was one. As a side note, uh, when you were talking about news and stuff, I sent you that uh, link, underwatertimes.com. Yes. Never been there. That's a very newsy uh, letter, newsletter, however you want to call it. But you name it, it's got it there. I just thought I'd toss that out if you guys have never been there before. No, I had never been there before. There's a lot of these sites. The the tough thing now with news, as I'm as I'm looking for the show, is you got a lot of these aggregation sites where they're yeah. automatically aggregating and they're just doing searches. So anything that comes up in the news that says dive or scuba, and a lot of times it can have nothing to do with diving and yeah. being those. So, uh, but this one looks good. I'm I'm gonna have to go through it. I'm always looking for uh, new new sites to get stories from. This next article is about the Scripps Oceanographic uh, Institute, or the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, is I guess their technical name. And uh, what they've done is they've actually just completed a project, which is to help clean the water, um, which seems kind of odd considering that uh, you know that they're a lot into ocean research. That they were, I won't say they were polluting the water, but they had a lot of runoff, and it was uh, creating you know, sediment in the water. And so they've gone through this program where they're actually filtering their runoff water. That's brilliant. Yeah, the uh, the San Diego Regional Water Quality Control Board, which monitors water at Scripps, uh, they said that they required the uh, UC San Diego to reduce the amount of excess irrigation water and other dry weather runoff that reaches the beach. Take regulators also required university to reduce pollutants and stormwater runoff. They spent $4.9 million to construct a water pollution control project in 2011 that they're now using for a model for other organizations throughout the state. It's quite interesting how they did that, and it's sort of funny, not funny, funny, but they're talking about one of the most innovative features involved four swimming pool-sized media filters consisting of gravelly bend of dolomite, gypsum, crushed rock, and as the stormwater slows down through the that filter, uh, phosphorus, copper, and other pollutants are absorbed and petroleum products are broken down. Looking at that in the paper here in St. Joe, they were talking about adding two four point something million gallon underground tanks to help handle runoff water so the water does not go into the sewer system to overflow into the septic systems and then overflow when they have storms. So it's not quite like this, but yet it's helping do the same thing. Yeah, it, it's a common problem we have here in the Midwest and the Great Lakes is that when we originally built our cities, you know, the sewers, the storm sewers and the sanitary sewers all go in the same pipes to the same water treatment plant. So in dry weather with no rain, they can usually handle the flow. Uh, but when you get a lot of rain, you're, they're, they're throwing raw sewage right there in that river. Right, and you also get the petroleum byproducts because you're getting it off the streets. Right. Oil yeah. and residue like that. And our other is, the big aspect is we've paved so much of the approach lines to streams and stuff. So instead of the, the, the basically the natural filters, the trees and the roots and vegetation to help minimize that, 
it comes right off the highway or right off a parking lot right into the river. That, that, that's very true. I mean, if you if you look at what we're we're seeing, I think all new construction here in the Midwest, if you have a large parking lot, you actually have to have an overflow basin to capture all that storm water. And all that paving actually generally causes more flooding in the end anyway, doesn't it? Because the water doesn't filter through, it has nowhere to go, so it all gathers and then runs off into the storm drains, as opposed to, as you say, naturally filtering down and eventually finding its way to the river. So you end up being more vulnerable to flooding. That, and then also a lot of our, uh, you know, even rural areas where we've ta- we've taken and made cropland, a lot of times those were... Uh, swamps and bogs and fens that have uh, been filled in or dried out to make them uh, uh, so you can grow crops. So that all just shortens that path between the rain coming down and it getting in the river. Uh, I mean, I almost hate to say anything, Mac, but it seemed like this year in the fall when we were diving the river, that's about the the cleanest I've seen it. This year? Yeah. Yes. We've had real good visibility. I mean, 15 feet's not bad. Not for the river. Yeah. I actually got down of the St. Joe River from the North Pier House. And that day I was diving inside the pier. It's like I could not believe the visibility. That's why I had to go back and get another tank. It's like that kind of opportunity when it strikes, you need to take advantage of it. Certainly. Now, when was that when you were doing that dive? That was last like in November. Oh, yeah. It's like I'd never seen the flow basically stop and you actually have visibility on the riverside. It was fantastic. Yeah, Yeah, I've done some dives there by the piers and yeah, that, that that's definition of a braille dive. Yeah. But so it's good that they're doing this and uh, maybe, you know, we can learn how to build our cities a little bit better so we don't have all that runoff. Gives us some more uh, bottom time for when we do our grubbing. Well, you talk about the runoff. That's one of the reasons Paw Paw Lake has uh, the big issue with milfoil and a lot of the other vegetation is the pollutants from the runoff, both from the agriculture and the way they reshape the river. It's It's making a big difference. You don't have the natural flow you used to and the natural filtering. Yeah. Well, and, and even here in this article, they're saying that native plants used in landscaping features called uh, bioswales remove silt and pollutants from the surface runoff. So yeah. all goes to, to help that. So, you know, I'm ready for it. Yeah. Okay. And then the next one we have in, uh, in, in the spirit of river diving. I'll paste this one in the chat room as well. This was, uh, they discovered a VW bug in the river. Well, anytime you leave your car with their engine in neutral, emergency brake off, and it starts rolling down a hill, you might expect that. Yep. The car nose down over a rock to 25, 30 feet of water with its hood open. The current had <laughs> moved it about 400 feet uh, to within 25 feet of the western shore. Early Friday morning, he watched his car quickly roll down the embankment. You got that sinking feeling in your stomach. <laughs> you, you certainly will. Like that that uh, last year when they went out to the, I can't remember which lake it was, Pipestone or one of those, the guy backed up with his boat, his brakes fail. Ooh. So both his boat, trailer, and car went in. You know, there's been a few times where I've wondered if that would happen because you, you get the boat in the water and... Either your tires are in the water in the back of your uh, your tow vehicle, and the boat's still stuck on the trailer, so you go a little deeper, and you try and get the slide off. And at some point, I'm just picturing that that boat ramp's going to all be slimy, and you won't get any traction on the way up. If you don't have four-wheel drive, you're asking for trouble. Well, it seems like uh, most of the vehicles that we've been using to uh, do boats in the mud club, you know, Bob's isn't, mine's not, Jim's not. All two-wheel drives. You know, it's just a matter of time before one of us goes in the drink. <laughs> well, I figure bobbin is inflatable. That's going to float pretty easily. So. Well, the, well, the, the boat's going to float. I don't think we're worried about the boats. I think, I think the vehicles is what I'd be concerned with. Well, he doesn't have to get in deep to get that one out. Oh, I see what you're saying. I got you. They'll hear back on this one. They said that the, shutting down the dam really helped. Uh, the river level dropped by four feet. Uh, they, the salvage crew moving to 400 feet would really throw a wrinkle into it because you wouldn't have thought it would have gone 400 feet. Well, yeah, he, most of them around here, it's within 50 feet of where the launch is. Yeah, I mean, unless you had a river really roaring, you wouldn't think 400 feet. Uh, not. So, uh, yeah, I'm wondering if that car's. You know, 
I, I'm kind of the insurance comp, company paid for it. The estimated damage to the demolished car was nine thousand dollars. Yeah, maybe I'm just a little biased on a VW bug, but most VW bugs I know aren't worth a couple thousand dollars. That, that wasn't a bug, though. Uh, that was a facade or something like that. Whatever. Oh, started. okay. I don't know. Maybe in my mind, when I saw VW, I was thinking a bug. I think I saw something in there as a facade or more of a uh, fancier vehicle. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, if they, they'll they'll spend uh, nine thousand dollars if it's worth nine thousand and one. So. Yeah. As a side note, again, Volkswagen's coming out with a more modern and uh, sportsized VW. I saw a picture of it a couple of months ago. It looks pretty nice. So you, you mean uh, a classic version like of the Beetle? Yes, but a little more sophisticated than that. It looks pretty sharp. I'm not sure when they're going to do anything with it or if it's only going to be in Europe. But I, I had a, the, Sorry. I used to have a 63 VW and I really liked it back in the old days. And they've got a new um, Beetle out at the moment. I don't know if they're improving on that. It's very cool, apparently. I haven't driven it. But it's, it, it looks good. That's such a girly thing to say, isn't it? <laughs> well, we, have, we, we have them here as well. We have uh, quite a few of the, the, the VW Bug that they just don't seem to be quite as classic as the, the older one. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, there's something about that. I remember in, this, in the 70s, my dad had... You know, a 1960s VW Bug, and that was always what we took to go to the beach. You know, we'd all climb in it, and it had that little, you know, the rear engine, and it had that little box in the back, not quite a trunk, you know. The the dog would sit in it, and you'd start the car, and then the dog would jump out. <laughs> and then you had the yeah. trunk trunk up front, or the boot yeah. up front. Yeah, you couldn't put anything in that, sucker. It just was not enough room. No. tiny. No, but that was a fun little car. And then I had a friend, his dad had one of those, and uh, we would tie a rope off the back of it in the winter, and then he would pull us sledding. Blast. And how's this for an ice dive? Iceberg diving in Newfoundland. Each year, about 40,000 icebergs cave off the glaciers in Greenland, but only a few hundred make it as far as Newfoundland. The best time to see them is in the summer. Uh, Ghost-like features drift offshore. The average berg size is about that of a 15-story building, with much of it below the surface for adventurous scuba divers. It's an interesting dive. Well, I like the ice flow racing better. Ice flow racing? Remember I was told you we need to get a team to go up, up towards the uh, St. Clair and those areas. They have the races in the river. You get your teams, and you go up there, and you knock out a chunk or triangle part of the uh, ice when it's breaking up in the river. And then you have a race so you can push their ice flow from point A to point B before the other team. Wow. That would be interesting. I sent you a note on that one. I I seem to vaguely remember something about it. You should have one there now. But we can't get enough diehards or crazies. I'm not not sure if it's diehard or crazy. Hey, if I I dive in the wetsuit in the ice, I'm up for something like that. (laughs) Now, now, is there requirements? Is there like a wetsuit class? Well, you can do it naked, I reckon. That'd, that'd be a way to really brave the ice. <laughs> no. <laughs> the one I sent you is from the Ontario Underwater Council. And that was part of it. It's an annual item. It's called the annual ice flow race. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that that looks a little little chilly. Cold. Of course, by that time, it's we're starting to warm up. We've already gotten a, you know four or five ice dives in by then. I'm ready for a dry suit, I can tell you that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you can call me a wimp. I've done it more than once, more more than a dozen times, but I'm ready. They can bring it on. Yeah, warm is warm, huh? Yep, warm is warm. Makes all the difference. (laughs) So that does it for the news, at least in uh, this year. We have one news article from last week that we'll go ahead and read and see if anybody has an idea what the date of this one is. This was Scuba Diver Spans Three Mile Straight. Fred Baldazar, a scuba diver from Cocoa, Florida, today braved sharks and bad weather to become the first man to swim the Strait of Messina underwater. He celebrated his 38th birthday, went into the water at 7.43 a.m. He came ashore the coast of Italy at 11.27 a.m., some distance from where he originally planned to land. 
The planned three-mile swim came out much longer because of strong currents and bad weather that forced him to take a zigzag course. He stayed about 15 feet underwater most of the way, utilizing air tanks and a mask. Although there were sharks in the area, he saw none during the swim. So what year was this? I'll give you a hint. It was June 9th. So, uh, hey, today's June 9th. Any ideas? Anybody in the chat room have an idea? We have Mike, we have Og, we have Mark, Ted. Anybody got an idea when that is? Let's throw out some years. How about Do you, you have a link? I've got a link. No, there'll be a link, but if I if I gave you the link, you'd know the answer. What do you think it is? Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's brave enough. Okay. Maybe I, uh, so we have one. We have Mike came out 1984. So to give a hint to everybody else who hasn't answered, uh, it's older than that. So it happened pre-1984. Take a wild guess at 1979, but that's a guess. 1979, that's getting a little bit closer, but it's mm-hmm. it's a little older than that or earlier time frame. How about you, Mac? Oh, here it is. I'll go ahead and, and paste it in. We have Mike, 75. That's getting closer. So to, to end the suspense, it was 1962. Mm-hmm. 1962. And I, I love looking at these old papers, seeing all the other things that were happening around the same time. So I'll go ahead and paste that in. Everybody can can take a look at that. And then from that, we go into where we talk about last week's dives. So I assume everybody got some dives in this week. I want to see. So you've got some, uh, Claire? Yes, I, I had a few. <laughs> <laughs> Anything memorable? Um, um, actually, yes. I, last time I saw you, I was heading off to Darhab that day. And... We had a lovely day. Oh, sorry. I've I need to, I've got an echo. Sorry. Um, yeah, I was heading up to Darhad that day and uh, had a great first dive. We actually had not a drastic incident, but a little bit of an incident in the second dive, where one of my divers at 30 meters, which is about 100 feet, suddenly I was sort of thinking, "Well, aren't we coming up to have a look at this lovely red anemone with the little clownfish and everything?" I suddenly realised he couldn't, and we're on a wall that just plunges down. And luckily, his body was close, and he signaled, did the right signal to me. And between us, we sort of gave him some buoyancy. So he had air flying out of his um, inflator hose. He's an experienced diver, and so at the end of the day, we sent the other guys with the other guide, and we sort of gave him buoyancy, and managed to get him up nice and slowly to the surface. But he bless him, had a bit of a moment down there thinking, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to stop myself from just dropping. Wow. So, yeah, we got him to the surface, got rid of his weights, and just very gently towed him back because he'd really overexerted himself trying to keep himself neutral down at depth and towed him back to a good exit point and got the guy, the jetty guys to help him out. And it was all fine, so that was good. And... Yeah, I guess it's a good learning curve for checking your kit just a little bit more carefully. But um, yeah, so all all end happy, ended happily, but at the time it was a little bit for him a little bit daunting. For us, we were kind of like, well, we've got you, we've got your buoyancy, you'll you'll be okay. This goes to show, never you know, there's always something that can crop up to remind you that you have to be careful when underwater. Yeah, that, that certainly is something you have to be careful for. Mm. That's, it's one of those things when we're diving on some of the really deep sites that I always wonder. You, you, you know, you, you hate to, you know, the, the one thing to do is, I'm, did he have integrated weights? He did, yes. Yeah. So you, you, um, you can always drop that, but now then you got the opposite problem. So what do you dump a little air? Yeah. To, so. Yeah, so, yeah, he would have gone flying up. So we, I guess he could. The good thing with integrated weights, actually, I've always, I've not really been that much of a fan of them because they do tend to fall out more easily. But the good thing with integrated weights is you could drop just one of them. Yeah. Whereas hey. when they're all on the weight belt, it's either all or nothing. You know, if you're, when you're underwater, that is. Yeah. I mean, he, he could have probably dropped one of his integrated weights and that might have been enough to give him... Obviously, he would have floated up a lot quicker, but it wouldn't have been as bad as dropping the whole weight system. Yeah, because I've, uh, I've, yeah, I've thought about that in my weight belt. You know, okay, I could take the weight belt off and then I could slide off a weight or something, but 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure about the time you you realize that you're you're more in a frame of mind where you know what I I don't want to sink. I want to go up. Yes. So yeah. it'd be very tempting just to to drop it all. But that's that's good that uh, that you were there to help and a dive buddy was there and everything yes. came out okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it just shows you know you can there's me kind of thinking oh. It's a lovely little anemone. We're all at 30, quite comfy. And I'm signaling him, oh, come and look at the anemone, come up a little bit, you're a little bit deep, you know. And then you realise that actually it's not his fault. And it, and it is a wall. And in all honesty, I'm not quite sure how deep that goes, the wall. It's one way you can't see the bottom. So, yeah, so he did, he did very well. He signalled very early on that he was struggling. And his, as I said, his buddy was there right by him. So... All, and it turned out well in the end. So it just goes to show that you know, if you, if you do the right thing, you can get yourself out of most situations. So, so, that's uh, my... so how did the rest of the dives go? Um, the rest of the dives have been. I've been teaching a lot this week. Actually, I've um, had a double whammy of rescue courses. I did two rescue courses in one week, which is unheard of. We don't get that many rescue courses here. Um, and first guy, actually, second guy rather, was an American guy who works is working for the MFO, the Multinational Forces of Observation. We've got a few of those guys. They live in. We've got North Camp and South Camp. North Camp is up by the border with Gaza, El Arish, and South Camp is down here in Sham. And we sometimes teach them to dive, and most of them will learn to dive. They go on and do their advance, do their rescue dive master, just get in loads and loads of diving. They love it. So I was doing this guy's rescue course. He was great, actually, really cool. But we're obviously doing it on a very popular hotel beach. So he's dragging me out of the water. And I must have felt the footsteps or something. And this Russian guy comes up, eager to help, and he's simulating the CPR. <laughs> and, yeah, he kind of sort of woke up and went, no, 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 sorry, it's a course. And obviously, we try not to make it too realistic so. We try not to scare everybody, but at the same time, you can't on a whole beach for tourists. You know, you can warn the people right next to you and say, look, don't worry, it's a rescue force. But you've got all nationalities going on, so you've got Russians, Italians, and unfortunately, I don't speak enough languages to be able to explain to everybody that, yeah, if you see me flailing around in the water, it's just a rescue course. <laughs> <laughs> so that was quite amusing. Yeah, well, that's what uh, uh, Rich... Uh, our our buddy at Diver Sync was talking about he he runs a concession at White Star Quarry and one of the things he talks mm. about is he doesn't like using fake words in the rescue course he you know if you're going to yell for help you're going to yell for help and he's yeah. had more than one yeah. occasion where bystanders up on the shore have actually ca- dialed you know our emergency number here which is 911 and uh, had you know dispatched people <laughs> when when they when they're yeah. doing the course. I know Paddy actually changed changed that recently because they used to teach you to say pizza, pizza. But unfortunately, you tend to do what your training has taught you. So if you've been taught to shout pizza, pizza, instinctively, I believe someone actually did do it, shouted out pizza, pizza instead of help. So they realized that actually maybe it's not the best thing. So we, do, we too teach to say help. Yeah, yeah exactly. Try not to make it too realistic. Especially with obviously, um, we had the shark attack in uh, in December last year, so you know, you don't want to frighten all the people on the beach who have no concept of diving and then suddenly go, Oh my god! <laughs> so, you try not to shout too loud. It's fine on the boats because you just warn the other boats next door, you just say, Look, we're doing rescue course, you know, there'll be lots of screaming, shouting, and flailing around, but when you're doing the training bits on the beach it's a little harder well mac what what kind of diving did you get in this week well let's see last thursday we talked about that one where we went out doing a little mowing the grass right yep i spent a lot of time at little pawpaw lake this week i saw some of the photos yeah i got a couple of dives in on the saturday and on sunday i did different kind of diving then went back during the week and did the kayak dive because I wanted to go further than I could the other way. I always hate having to use half my tank to come back. I'd rather spend it diving. Certainly. And then so I met some people when I was doing the kayak dive. 
that invited me back on their property, which was really nice. It was on the point. So I went back to their house and then uh, did some diving off their property for, for a day. Now, did and they think they had anything lost out there that they were hoping you would discover? Oh, well, actually, no, but the guy said, since I'm out there, if I find any concrete anchors, I might want to bring them back up. You could use a couple. So oh. <laughs> I brought him back some, and I'm going to be the one that's already made. Yeah. Uh, but the nicer part, one of the um, hotels that started opening there in 1903, I'd been wanting to look at that area, and I knew where it was. But when I got by his house, it was right by his house. So he gave me some history. got some nice pictures of the cabins, which are still there. So I may go back there and do some metal detecting on the surface and underwater. Nice. And you guys went out on the Rockaway in Verano, as I remember. And let's see what else. Oh, and then we did our dive yesterday there at, um, as part of the SAS diving over in Battle Creek. We did Eagle Lake at Fort Custer Recreation Area. So we've got a nice dive in there. So okay. Now, it's nice. Now, Eagle Lake, that's on the... Um South side of the highway there, right? Uh, Eagle Lake is north if you come out on exit 85 off I-94. Is that by the fire lane? Is that the one we normally get to by the fire lane? You've never been to Eagle Lake at Fort Custer Recreation Area. That's a different Eagle Lake. The Eagle Lake you're thinking is the one down by uh, Lake Cora. So instead of going left to Cora, you go to the right to that Eagle Lake. So so it's another Eagle Lake. It's kind of like Pigeon River. Yeah. Yeah, there's like a thousand pigeon rivers in Michigan, so there's... You look up Blue Lake, and it, the Blue Lake is somebody local's term because it's called Portage Lake. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I posted some items on that because uh, Rich has been making those dives, so I've been tagging along the last couple of weeks. But uh, I got more information after the dive than before the dive that would have been nice to know before the dive. Oh, of course. Uh, when they say, did I find the biplane? It's like... No, I didn't know there was one. Oh, did you see the tank? And then when I mean tank, they meant army tank. Really? Yeah. So uh, we'll talk. We'll yeah, talk. I, I, I'm. That sounds like a, a spot we we might need to go there again. Now, oh, there's it, it's, it's some good interesting information we got. I mean, they, they, we had I think 20 people. No, 18 people went out to eat afterwards. Excellent. So there was a crowd, and yeah. that's a nice group because they got a, a good number of women who are diving. So it's really? stuff, guys, there's some ladies out there, which is always nice. Yeah, I don't. Uh, uh, well, we actually had a Dover lady this week. Like you said, we did. Uh, we went out and did the Rockaway, which is very similar to Vanna, Bob, Kurt, uh, myself. Uh, we had David and oh, I'm gonna she'll Raquel. Tell me, Raquel. Raquel. Uh, great, thank you. Raquel was out there, so uh, we all got dive in. So it was an excellent dive. Bob went down, had his reel. And he, he, he's like a tour guide, you know, when, when you go dive with him. He's got that rebreather, so he's already gone down and got the line to all the different spots to see and, you know, took us to all the different parts of the wreck because that wreck is pretty well filleted out. Uh, didn't see 100% of everything, but I think we probably saw a good 95%. Uh, a few more boards exposed that weren't the year before, so there is a little movement down there, uh, but not much new to see. Uh, how was the zebras on that? I mean, did it have sand so you could tell it was new because no zebras? Right, right. That's usually you can, you know, usually the board, especially the decking, kind of goes into a sandbank. Uh, you know, whatever's been recently exposed will have no zebra mussels. So um, it seems like previous years we've had more new boards exposed than we did this year. Um, you know, catfish is there in the, uh, you know, if you happen to dive on the Rockaway and you look down that center with a keel box there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a catfish in it. The interesting part about that wreck and the Havana is if you dive it at night, you will see fish that you don't see during the day. And especially if you have your light, you'll see lawyer fish. Uh, and I don't think they're called lawyer fish because they're bottom feeders or anything. It's <laughs> a coincidence. Coincidence. Just a coincidence. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd, I'd, be, I'd love to, to. Jim and I have been talking about doing a night dive. Especially now that we're getting the summer, if we get one of those flat nights, it'd be great to go out there. You know, if you go with Bob and Kurt, you're gonna need sunglasses because they got those lasers that they Which use. Which is fine with me. I don't mind <laughs> fine. I just follow in the shadow of Bob, and I don't have to take a light. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's Bob and Kurt. They've got the uh, you know the tech diving lights. Yeah, they call portable suns. 
portable suns. <laughs> uh, I, and I think he actually upgraded to LED this year. He had to replace his HID bulb, and they talked him into doing uh, the LED. Uh, the guy I dove with yesterday had an LED, LED light, which sort of surprised me. Well, it did me too, because Bob had been, because I've been talking about it. You know, I follow the the lights quite closely, and I, I've been wanting an LED because that's one of, the, you know, it's hard to explain to the wife why I need to spend six hundred dollars on a flashlight. But uh, you know, I was thinking the LED, and Bob was trying to talk me out of it, and then he goes and replaces his bulb with one. So I guess that means it makes it acceptable to have the LED. The LED light, the LED lights are quite spectacular. They're really such a clear, bright light. Yeah, Jim's got a small one, his backup light, which is LED, and that mm. one's a nice one. I mean, that will that will light up quite a big area. Yeah, from such a tiny little like a mag light type size, yes. and you'll get a really good beam from it. So that's something I need to need to pick up. But the Rockaway, that that was a good dive, and then after that, we did one I hadn't done before, which is the Verano. The Verano is about a hundred foot pleasure boat that went down in the early 1940s. Uh, if you read the story on the MSRA website, uh, they said the boat had the tendency to roll a little bit unpredictably. So I guess that's the ultimate unpredictable rolls to go down. And that one was about 50 feet of water, and it's in a area that they call the clay banks there, uh, which I, I now have seen for the first time again. So they've got these outcroppings in the bottom. They go anywhere from one foot up to 10 to 15 feet up. So it was hard to actually find the wreck when the first person found it because it was mixed in with those clay banks uh bob did the line on that one he got down before we did but he 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 did one of those things where he turned the wrong direction so after about 350 degree sweep he found exactly what he was looking for uh we found the motor we found the gas tank we found the boat and the deck so uh that that was kind of cool not as exciting yeah that's that's one of those i think you could dive the Verano once every three or four years. That's all you need. I don't think you need to do that one every year. Um, we didn't get out to the big clay banks, which I, I wouldn't mind doing sometime. Well, you need to get on the clay banks there in Pawpaw at least once. Certainly. Now, would, will I expect to see something similar? It's quite interesting. You would not expect to find uh, a deep V where the current goes through. Oh. And you'll have the holes on the side, so you keep waiting for the moray eels, the freshwater <laughs> moray eels to come the, out. The, the freshwater morays that don't exist. Yes. <laughs> saber-toothed guppies. Saber-toothed guppies. In your mind, everything is there. So, yeah. Would you play a game of chicken, get people to put their hands in them? Oh, not me. <laughs> yeah, it said, said from the grubber who puts his hands uh, shoulder deep in the muck. Well, al- you know, I keep thinking alligator snapping turtle. Forget that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was the two dives that we did. It was a, a great day. I mean, waves were zero to one feet, uh, sunny out. Uh, I've got enough of a suntan going now where I didn't burn instantly to a crisp. In fact, if anything, cause I wore the wetsuit we did, since we did two dives, I had the wetsuit on between the dives. So I, I thought for a while there, I was probably going to have that reverse moon pie face, you know, where it'd, it'd be a big, big red, yellow disc. Uh, so so that's it. And then this weekend we're talking about getting uh, some dives in. It sounds like the Ann Arbor Five and the Barge and Crane on Sunday. <laughs> so Saturday looks like it might be a little rough. So we're planning for Sunday, and I've I've been uh, gotten my pe- day pass to go and dive. So what do you got? Yeah, I think the best days next are Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. So strike while the iron is hot. Exactly. Uh, so you got anything on the on the plans to go dive? Are you talking about Claire or me? Uh, you, Mac. Yeah, it'll depend on the weather. We'd like to get out and uh, do a couple of bounces on some other targets out there in the lake. Uh, instead of this uh, save them for later, we're just going to toss a buoy out and bounce it. Because mm-hmm. there's too many targets, at, at, and they look suspiciously like bones. We might as well check it out. And if it is, then we got a firm hit. So, so something like dinosaurs or pterodactyls or something? Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> Oh, wow, that sounds cool. I'm doing that. I think next week uh, Ken's off, so we're going to try to get out and uh, play with our new toy. And you know the one I'm talking about. Yes. Uh, make sure that's functional. And uh, I mentioned to him about the airplane and the tank, and he thought, that sounded interesting. So I wouldn't mind taking a trip up there and see if we can scan it and find it. Yeah, that, that'd be a nice one to go and do. 
So I'll, I'll let you guys uh, find out where it's at, and then I can just come and ride on your coattails and, and dive in. <laughs> I would love to find that tank and get permission to bring it up. That would be awesome. So did they have a story of how that tank got down there? Well, Fort Custer is a fort. Oh, uh, so so this is, you're, you're talking about the Fort Custer. Uh, yeah, Battle Creek. Battle Creek, yeah, because that, uh, hmm, that, that's, uh, I love going camping there. I take my uh, my travel trailer there. Uh, we used to do that location, uh, Jim and myself, two or three times a year, but we wow. never did, that was pre-diving days. Well, they did hydro races out there last week. That's our third annual hydro, uh, you know what I meant by hydro racing, right? Mm-hmm. The hydroplanes? Yep. I was out there last week. And I didn't know it, but that's one of the top places in the country for uh, off-country or, or that uh, BMX bike riding. Oh, yeah. Well, that, yeah that's, why we, that's why we went there. Do, do you know what they're riding for the BMX race, the, the uh, courses, what those, those are? Uh, they, they publish them, and they've got maps of that because I met a, a young lady out there, and uh, she's coming in early because they're going to do a triathlon race of biking, but it's not the regular bike. It's a uh, cross-country biking. Uh-huh. And swimming and some other stuff. Yeah. So they, it sounds like they keep quite busy out there. Parking lot's huge. And next time I go, I'm taking my dolly car because I ain't hauling my gear from the parking lot to the beach. That well, is too far for an old man. Well, what you need to do is you need to tell me uh, when you're doing it. And we'll just make sure that we're camping up there that weekend. Because you're actually on the uh, the the park land right there. Is that that's where yes. you're, And they've yeah. got that large lake. Yeah, that's, that's Eagle Lake. There's actually three lakes on that reservation, but the major one is this. And I got some history out of that one that for a two-year period of time, they didn't let you dive there because some grubbers were out there and they started bringing up some live mortar shells. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So they, they had the UDT teams out there as their exercise for two years, clearing out the lake. Uh, yeah, okay. That was interesting. But, but, yeah, but we were back on the BMX bikes. What they're riding in is the foxholes and trenches that were, they were doing in the training. So as they, you know, as a part of their training, they were teaching people how to dig the trenches, and they just never filled them in. So uh, those have become excellent uh, bike courses, and I, I've ridden on those quite a bit. They're a blast. Uh, I need to. I, the only thing I don't like is they don't let me use my metal detector out there. Big signs. Part of it they said was because the frequency could set off some of the the explosives in the lake. And the second part, they don't want you walking through a minefield. <laughs> that makes sense. It yeah, they, does to me. It does to me. I mean, does. that's killing crossbones is not pirates. That means mines. <laughs> so they're, they're, what they're not telling us, we probably should also walk light when we're heading through the woods there. That's why you let your kids go first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, Claire, you got some dives planned for this week? Um, yeah, I'm teaching a scuba diver course at the moment. Um, it's actually, the guy's out on his honeymoon, and he's decided to learn to dive from his here without his wife, which I find rather strange. Now, what is she doing um, while he's diving? She's back at the hotel. Because, huh. um, of course, I, I must admit, the scuba diver course, it's not really... An actual, well, it is a certification, but you're not learning how to be self-sufficient on a scuba diver course. So I always try and encourage people to actually do the full open water course. Um, however, yeah, when I started suggesting this, it's like, oh, no, that'll be cause for divorce. I'm on my honeymoon. So, yeah, I thought that was quite an interesting choice of um, yeah. activities to do when, when your wife doesn't want to put her face in the water. And or your new wife doesn't want to put her face in the water, and you decide I'm going to go and learn to dive, love. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, so, yeah, it's an interesting choice, I thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly <laughs> um, is. Yeah, so I'm finishing off his course, and then, as I said, I I'll find out uh, probably this afternoon. They'll give me a call and say when well, you're doing this or that. So it could be guiding, it could be teaching. But it's getting it's getting really warm, so you know, the sea's warming up as well, which is gorgeous. And um, the fish are starting to gather around um, Ras Mohammed, which is really cool. So it's, it's just a matter of time before around about this month into next month it gets really exciting. And all the big stuff starts coming, so hopefully they'll learn something interesting. Excellent. Well, I think that does it. Uh, anybody have anything else? Any, anything you'd you'd like to plug before we go, Claire? Oh, actually, I 
course, I'm going to pass. Going to send you a link for it. I've got a couple of friends of mine who are bikers and divers, and they are doing a trip around Egypt um, on bikes and diving as much as they can. Um, I'm just trying to yeah, so, biking, so diving bikers. Diving bikers. So they've got their yeah. uh, motorcycles all yeah. hooked up with their gear, and then they drive around and dive. Yeah, they're, they're doing the whole of Egypt. They were meant to be doing the, the coloured seas. They were meant to be doing the Red Sea, the White Sea, which is the Mediterranean. In Arab language, white is the Mediterranean. They call it probably Shah Abiyad. Um, and the Black Sea. But the trip was going to take them up through Syria, so obviously they can't do that at the moment. Mm, so yeah. they've decided, well, they've got their gear together, they've got their plan together, they've got the website up. So they're going to ride around the whole of Egypt and dive everywhere that they can within Egypt. So at the moment, the last I saw, they've got like a little website called divingbikers.net. Last I saw, they were just sort of, oh no, they've headed down now. They were in Alexandria and they're now in Alamein. So they're diving the, at the moment, they'll be the, diving in the Mediterranean. So seeing all various artifacts and stuff that are sunk in the Mediterranean at the moment, so it's quite cool. So that's divingbikers.net. Yeah, two friends of mine. Actually, John taught me to dive. <laughs> nice. Years ago. Yeah, they're on their KTM bikes and just doing, doing what, the two things that they love most, which is quite cool. Excellent. So, yeah, they got a nice website here. And then I also mm. saw that they're on Facebook as well. I mean, on uh, yeah. Twitter as well. Yeah, they've got a lot. <laughs> Great. And then also people can uh, follow you at your website, which is, is at divebunny divebunny.com. Yes. Divebunny.com. Okay. Well, I think we've stalled long enough. It's time for that bad scuba joke of the week. Everybody ready? Absolutely. Go on then. Okay. Here we go. A scuba diver had been driving all night, and by morning he was still far from his destination. He decided to stop at the next city he came to and park somewhere quiet where he'd get an hour or two of sleep. As luck would have it, a quiet place he chose happened to be one of the city's major jogging routes. No sooner did he settled back to snooze when the knocking came on the window. He looked out and saw a jogger running in place. Yes, he said. Excuse me, sir, the jogger said. Do you have the time? The man looked at his car clock and answered, It's 8.15. The jogger said thanks and left. The man settled back again and was just about to doze off when another knock on the window came, and it was another jogger. He said, excuse me, sir, do you have the time? He said, yeah, it's 8.25. The jogger said thanks and left. Now the man could see other joggers passing by, and he knew it was only a matter of time before another one disturbed him. To avoid the problem, he got out a pen and paper, put a sign in the window saying, I do not know the time. Once again, he settled back to sleep. He was just about to doze off when another knock on the window. Sir, sir, it's 8.45. So, yeah, see, we, we live up to a villain. Bad joke. So, on, on that note, for uh, Claire, Mac, Jim, and myself, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. Absolutely. Take care.